Genesis chapter 10, we're going to be reading the whole chapter. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, Togarmah. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. From these, the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans and their nations. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ra'amah, and Sabteca. The sons of Ra'amah, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalnia in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh. Rehoboth, Ur, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala, that is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludim, Anamim, Lehabim, Naphtuhim, Pathrusim, Kasluhim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtarim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archetites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Zemarites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed, and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, and their lands, and their nations. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arphaxad, Lud, and Aram. And the sons of Aram, Uz, Hol, Gether, and Mash. Arphaxad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almodad, Shelah, Hezarmaveth, Jerah, Hadoram, Uzal, Diklad, Obal, Abamel, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Misha in the direction of Sephar to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies and their nations. From these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Let's pray together. Lord, this is your word. You have recorded these names, these peoples, these nations for a reason. All of these were known to Israel, though they may not be known to us. And God, I pray that you would teach us 
today from your word, Lord. I know that there is so much that I want to say, and I believe there's only one thing that you truly want to say. And so, God, I pray that uh, if anything is prepared that is not of you, that you just strike it from my notes. And that, Lord, you would share your heart for your people as we look out at the world that we live in and we see peoples and tribes and tongues and nations and Lord, all kinds of idolatry and sin and rebellion against you, Lord. And would you teach us how you want us to live in a world so full of rebellion? Pray that you would lead us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, biblical genealogies are fun, right? <laughs> I once uh, memorized my wife's family's genealogy for our wedding. Uh, her mom wrote out a family tree for me, and I just I memorized all the names. I didn't have faces to go with the names. Um, but when I would meet someone, I was like, oh, you're, you're so-and-so. So you're married to so-and-so, and your kids are, you know, these kids. And it, like, blew them away. They, they, they felt... Uh, I found out later, just felt very honored that I would take the time and, and, and learn about how I was connected to their family. And I tell that not to, you know, pat myself on the back at all. But these names are recorded for a reason. And Israel understood their place in the world by looking at genealogies and how the nations spread abroad throughout the earth. Genealogies are actually incredibly important in scripture. And this genealogy specifically, chapter 10 of Genesis, is an incredibly important list of names. It's known um, throughout church history as the table of nations. These are all of the peoples that uh, lived in the world that was known to the ancient Israelites. This is, these are all of the nations that they, they knew who these people were. They knew where they lived. And so they would look at this genealogy and they would see that, yes, this is, these are all of the nations in the world. And the thing that I, the thing that I really want to focus on today is, as, as we talk is that these, these nations in Genesis chapter 10, all of these nations, every single one of these people were alienated from God. All of chapter 10, all of those nations, they were living in rebellion against God. See, this is a foreshadowing, right? You've got Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. They got off the ark. It's told that they're going to, their, their family, their peoples are going to spread throughout the land. But in the very next story, as we'll learn next week, there's the Tower of Babel. In the Tower of Babel, the people build a temple. It's called a tower. It is a temple. They are trying to ascend to the heavens apart from God. It's most likely a temple to the Mesopotamian god Molech. Not, sorry, not Molech, Marduk. Most likely a temple to, to Marduk. And they are trying to ascend. They're trying to achieve uh, uh, salvation, eternal life. However they define that, they're trying to achieve it apart from the God who created the universe. And so God scatters the people over the face of the land. And, and again, we'll talk about that next week. And so each and every one of these families, each and every one of these people, they are living in rebellion 
against God. It's not until chapter 11 that we will begin to discover the lineage that would lead to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the children of Israel. But it's, we're, it's hinted at in this passage, specifically when it talks about Shem being the father of all the children of Eber. It's a very like throwaway phrase. But the, the name Shem is where we get the word, it's Shemite, it's where we get the word Semite. So an anti-Semite is someone who is hostile to the Jewish people, comes from the name of Shem. And Shem is the father of all the children of Eber. Eber is where we get the word Eberus or Hebrews, right? And so Eber has two kids. One is Joktan. Chapter 10 follows Joktan's lineage. Chapter 11 will follow Peleg's lineage. And Peleg will eventually lead us to Abram, who is Abraham, and then Isaac and Jacob and the children of Israel. So chapter 10, Israel is not in this table of nations. So here's what I want us to key in on, is that God's people have always lived within a world that is in rebellion. God's people have always lived within a world that is in rebellion to God. Our world is no different. I've had so many conversations with people lately who are, maybe some of you, who are living in fear of the world out there. Everywhere we look, there's various brands of rebellion. Call it whatever you want, whether it's political or national, ethnic, like like all of these different divisions that people are living, always trying to point the finger. It's these person's problem. It's that problem. These people are doing this. They're ruining the world. They're, you know, all of these things. And they're pointing the finger, dividing over this stuff. The world is no different today than it's always been. God's people have always lived in a world bent on rebellion against God. Today, it's ideological rebellion. Rebellion against truth. Rebellion against God's word. Rebellion against Science, rebellion against all of these different things. It's rebellion against fitting into anyone's box, just doing whatever you want, indulging in whatever you desire. And so we're living within a world in rebellion against God. And it's not slowing down. And it's not going to stop. And it's going to continue snowballing and 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 we're going to be continually aware of the things in our world that don't line up with what God desires for the world many christians believe that our only hope is revival so we've been praying for revival many of you have been praying for revival revival is this this special outpouring of god's spirit on, on, on people uh, uh, and, and radically transformed lives, uh, salvation. Some of you have experienced 
revivals. Some of you are Christians today because of historic revivals that took place in our country in the 60s, the 70s, the Jesus people movement. Some of you were here for that, and some of you are praying that it would happen again, and we should pray for revival. But what if our prayers for revival were actually excuses to not live revived lives? What if our prayers for revival were from behind closed doors? God, save all of the wicked people out there. And we huddle together in our little churches on Sundays between the hours of 10 and noon. Our faith is on display and we sing with loud voices. and We talk to people about Jesus and then we go out to the world and we don't live revived lives. Lord, just Lord, save all the wicked people. And we're here in our little shelter. We're here in our little bubble. And we're not actually out there living revived lives. And what should that even look like? What would it look like to live revived lives in a world of rebellion? What would it look like for God's people throughout the history of Israel? What did God want for them? How did God want them to live? How does God want us to live? This genealogy is a reminder that the people of God were always surrounded by the enemies of God. They lived in rebellion, but God had a plan to choose from the peoples of the world, a people who would live distinctly different lives. So as we talk about how to live in a rebellious world, number one, reality carp, live differently. Live differently than the world. As the variety of cultures spread throughout the world after Babel, God called one man, Abram. And he said, Abram, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What families? All of the families. What families? The families in chapter 10. This is just two chapters later. The context of this, I will bless all the families of the earth, are all the families living in rebellion against God. God's plan to reach the nations is a covenant with Abraham. Chooses one man. I will bless you and you will be a blessing to all the peoples of the world. And so Abraham and his wife, Sarah, would give birth to their son, Isaac. And Isaac would have Jacob and Jacob would have 12 sons who would become the 12 uh, uh, tribes of Israel. And in Exodus 19, God describes to Israel, the descendants of Abraham, his plan for them. Exodus 19, four through six. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, right? God judged the Egyptians, brought Israel out of Egypt through the Red Sea and into freedom. You saw what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel, you will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A holy nation, you are going to be a people who is set apart, distinct, different from all of the other nations. And in that difference, you will function as priests, okay? A a priest, we don't have a lot of like... 
an understanding of priests the way that the ancient world understood priests. A priest was a mediator between people and God. And so a priest uh, uh, offers sacrifices on behalf of the people to God and pronounces grace and forgiveness to the people on behalf of God. He stands in between. He's a mediator. And so in the same way, Israel was supposed to be a kingdom of priests. They were supposed to mediate God's presence to the world, to the nations, to these nations in Genesis 10. They were supposed to live in such a way, distinctly different lives, that they would put on display God's holiness. They would put on display God's goodness. They would put on display God's wisdom and justice and mercy. They would put on display God's righteousness and his holiness by the way that they live. This is why God tells them, he said, all the nations are going to look at you and say, what wise and understanding people who have this God who has given them such a, this law that, that they live differently. It was supposed to be attractive to the rest of the nations. And they were actually supposed to come to Israel and worship the God of Israel because of the way the people of Israel lived. They were supposed to live distinctly different, holy lives set apart other, not like the rest of the world. They were supposed to live differently from the rest of the world. And their distinct differences were supposed to be attractive to the rest of the world because they were to understand such wisdom and generosity and justice and mercy because of this law that their God, who's in covenant with them, has given them. But they didn't live that way. Israel, did, that's what the whole Old Testament is about. If you're, if you're new to the Bible and you try to read through the prophets, you're like, why is God just ripping this people apart? It's because he wasn't, he, he, he He was rebuking them for not living the way that he had called them to live. There are harsh words in the Old Testament for God's people. He's calling them to faith, calling them to repentance, calling them to do justice, to show mercy, to love the world, and to put his glory on display. But they rebelled against God, just like all of the other nations. And they didn't live differently from the other nations. And so their distinctiveness was lost. Their, their mission was hindered. And they actually lived in such a way that pushed the nations away from God. And so the Apostle Paul reflects on this in Romans 2.24 when he said, The name of God is blasphemed among the nations because of you. Because of your hypocrisy. He tells them, because of of your rebellion against God, while you claim the name of God, all of the nations are looking at you and saying, God is a farce. We see this in our world today. People look at the church and what's the number one accusation against Christians? You're hypocrites. You claim the name of God while you live in rebellion against God. And so people are not drawn to God by your distinctly different life. They're not drawn to God by the the truth that, that we proclaim. They're actually repelled from God. The name of God is blasphemed among the nations because of hypocrisy among God's people. This is what the Apostle Paul is reflecting on. They did not live differently And so God sent them into exile 
They sent them out of their land and into Babylon, sent them and scattered them among the nations. And when they were called back into uh, Israel, back into the promised land, they realized that it was because of their sin that led to their exile. And so they made incredible reforms. They, they began to take holiness seriously. They wanted to take righteousness seriously. They wanted to take the law seriously and the Sabbath seriously. They wanted to take scripture seriously. But their desire to be holy, their desire to take all of these things seriously led them to live in, in not, not just distinctly different. They completely separated themselves from the world. Okay, they refused to associate with anything or anyone outside of their own people. And they isolated the blessing of God from the world. And so we need to be mindful that living in a world of rebellion means that we live differently, but it also means that we need to love the world. We must absolutely cling to truth, biblical truth about who God is and what he has done. We must not compromise the word of God and the truth of Jesus and the way he has called his people to live. We must be be holding, clinging to that, living a life that is distinctly different because we're living in line with the word of God, but not separating ourselves from the world that's in rebellion. We've been called to love this world. And this has been difficult for all of God's people throughout generations. We have a responsibility to live distinctly different lives while also loving and serving the people in this world who mock our faith, reject our God, and live lives that offend the holy God in heaven, the creator of the heavens and the earth. Live distinctly different, love boldly to love the world. And we will typically struggle with one or two, uh, with one of these two areas. We'll either struggle with holding fast to truth and holding fast to holiness and righteousness, or we will struggle with loving the world and being a present force of love and, and service and, 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 and serving the common good of the world. We will struggle in one of these two areas, just as they did in ancient Israel. And if we sacrifice either our distinctiveness or our love, what we truly sacrifice is our effectiveness in God's mission in this world. If we want to see the world transformed for Jesus, we need to live in light of the truths of Jesus and carry the love of Jesus and the truth of Jesus to the world, not just in our words, but in the way that we live. This has always been an issue. There were, uh, in Jesus' day, there were four philosophies um, that, uh, that, that were trying to influence um, Israel and how, how they lived. The first we're familiar with, those are the Pharisees. The Pharisees are, are one of these four philosophies. They were the religious conservatives of Jesus' day. Okay? They, they took seriously God's word. They took seriously holiness. They took seriously righteousness. They followed strict adherence to the law and they rejected any foreign influence and encouraged people to separate themselves from the Romans. They made these little bubbles. 
they would gather together in the synagogue and they would read God's word and they would pat each other's on the back because of their righteousness. And they would, the, the people looked up to them because they were, they, they were living more righteously. They were living uh, lives that looked like they honored God, but they completely separated themselves from the rest of the world. They wouldn't go near the Romans. They wouldn't touch them. They wouldn't interact with them. They wouldn't have anything to do with them. And, and we see this in Christian history as well. We see people throughout uh, church history acting like Pharisees. Maybe we're so concerned that we'll be stained by the sin of the world that we completely isolate ourselves from non-believers. You live around them, but you don't really have anything to do with them. Um, if you don't have any non-believing friends, you might be living like a Pharisee. If you don't have people in your life who don't know Jesus, and you're not reaching out to them, loving them, you might be living like a Pharisee. We see this throughout church history. People wanting to create their Christian bubbles, leave the world out there to burn, but I'm safe right here. The second philosophy is the Sadducees. These are the religious liberals of their day. They sacrificed their distinctiveness and sought to maintain a cooperative relationship with Roman authorities because they recognized their political and military power and they wanted to you know, have some good standing with Rome. And so they downplayed their distinctiveness as Jewish people and they leveraged their uh, political positions of power in trying to uh, uh, be accepted by those who are in power. There are many churches today who are denying the sinfulness of sin in order to be more acceptable to the world in fear of rejection, in fear of being canceled, in fear of what the world might say about them. But listen, um, Jesus didn't send the disciples out into the world to make friends. Okay, he sent them in the world to make disciples. Okay, now this doesn't mean you get to be a jerk okay, and just be obnoxious to people. But our job as disciples is to make disciples, not to make people like us. In fact, Jesus tells us quite the opposite. If we are living in light of the gospel, they will hate us just like they hated Jesus. And so people experience a little tension. They experience a little hostility from the world. And then they want to change what they believe or they want to change the way that they're living or they want to say that things are okay, that scripture says is not okay because I can be accepted by God and the world. No, you can't. Living like a Sadducee. Okay, the other philosophy is the zealots. Combine the conservative theology of the Pharisees with the willingness to use violence and you have the zealots. The zealots would actually carry daggers with them and assassinate Roman officials, assassinate tax collectors, assassinate Jewish sinners for, for, for bringing uh, sin into the world. They were trying to purify Israel through murder and through violence. Okay, these people existed. They were there. And we see this in church history as well. The Crusades, the Spanish Inquisition, periods of colonization that was convert or be conquered. And it's disgusting. 
It does not represent Jesus. But we have zealot light, diet zealots in the church today. Okay, we're not out there murdering people. But behind our screen names on social media, the vitriol, the violence, the anger, the rejection, the complete, utter uh, disgrace to the name of Jesus by the way that Christians interact on social media with people that they disagree with. It's fine to disagree with them. It's not okay to attack them. Just diet zealots, social media zealots. That's... That's, that's not, that doesn't represent Jesus. The, there's a fourth philosophy called the Essenes. The Essenes were the people who lived in Qumran and wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls. They, like the Pharisee, were, the Pharisees were very religiously conservative. So much so that they wouldn't even live in the same cities with the Romans. They went and built their own city and they separated themselves and, 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 and practiced you know, these daily baths of ritual purity just to keep the stain of the world off of themselves. And they just lived over in this little commune. This kind of attitude toward the world is what resulted in the Christian church in some monastic movements. They just moved to the hills and lived in caves to separate themselves from the world. And it's what causes people today to move from California to Texas or Florida. (laughs) I need to remove myself from the stain of this world. It's not wrong to live in Texas or Florida. See your eyes on me. It's a joke but I'm going to go someplace that's more safe for me. I'm going to go someplace where, where the, the, the world isn't as sinful, where I don't have to put up with some of the things that I have to put up with in California. And so I go and shelter myself and live in a place that is more af- uh, affirming of what I believe. Now, none of these strategies worked for Israel and none of them will work for us. Why not? Because all of them, are self-serving. All of these strategies are self-serving, whether creating a bubble for yourself from the world or trying to be accepted by the world, trying to leverage power and influence in the world by aligning yourself with people in the world. All of it is self-serving. And so we no longer see ourselves as, as God's servants to the world, which is what Israel was always called to be. They were called to be priests. They were supposed to mediate God's presence to the world, to serve them in that way, to invite them into the worship of their God. And we no longer see ourselves as servants of God to the world. We think that our faith in God should serve us and provide a comfy, cushy life for us. And so we will find ourselves operating in one or more of these four areas. Because we want safety, we want comfort, we want security. We've been told that we should be accepted. We should be told that the world is wrong, that we're right, and that it's their problem. But in Scripture, God has always sent his people into the world to bring the, 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 the glory and the truth of God to the world. didn't work for Israel and it's not going to work for us. 
So how do we live lives of distinctiveness? How do we live holy lives while also being loving? How can we live differently from our culture, but also live in such a way that our culture knows that God loves them and sees God's love for them? How do we live in this way? Reality Carp, we have to look to Jesus. Jesus is the only way that we can understand how this works. John three sixteen through 18, for God so loved the world that he gave, he sacrificed his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Jesus did not remove himself from the world. Okay, Jesus left the glory and riches and holiness and safety of heaven and came into a dirty, broken, disgusting, filthy, sinful world. He moved to California. Or something like it. He moved into the broken world. He stepped into darkness. He left the bubble. He left the comfort. He left the glory. And he came into brokenness. He didn't isolate himself from sinful people. He lived distinctly differently. He did. He fulfilled the law. He obeyed the law. He was perfectly faithful to God in every single way. Perfectly righteous, perfectly faithful, perfectly obedient. He lived a distinctly different life. He lived a holy and righteous life. But the most distinctly different thing about Jesus was his love, was the way that he loved people. See, the world might be able to see your morality and say that you live differently, but I pray that the world would also see uh, alongside of our truth, would also see our love and see that that is evidence of our distinctiveness. See, the reason we can live distinctly different lives and loving lives is because our love is what should make us distinct. Jesus went into the homes of those who were rejected by Israel, including Roman soldiers, but he went to tax collectors. He went to sinners. He didn't wait for them to show up at synagogue or show up at the temple and say, I'm so glad you're here. You need to hear what I have to tell you. No, he went into their homes. He went into the belly of the beast. He went into the darkness. And the Pharisees hated him for it. The Pharisees looked at him and said, you're defiling yourself by being with these people. Why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? And he said, it's not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. If you can look out there, and see all the sickness and all the brokenness of the world, 
then that's your invitation to go to the brokenness, to go to the darkness, because you have, if you've trusted in Jesus, if you've believed in the good news of Christ for your salvation, that he died for your sins, and the only reason you can be reconciled to God is because of what Jesus has done for you. Listen, Genesis 10 is our family tree, okay? We did not fall far from the tree. He saved us out of our own worlds of rebellion, Can we know the goodness of God to save us from what he saved us from and to bring us into what he brought us into? You know that goodness, you know that beauty, you know that glory, that wonder. Not because you're awesome, but because Jesus is awesome. And if you can look out there and go, all of them them need what I have, yes and amen. So go to them. Go and bring the good news of Jesus. Go and bring the truth of Jesus and bring the love of Jesus to a world that is so desperate to know what real love is because it's not what they say it is. Scripture teaches that God is love, but our world is telling us that love is God and those are not the same things. our distinctly different lives and the lives of love that God is calling us to to live in this world can only, can only happen is if we take our cue from Jesus. He was distinctly different. Here's the thing. Jesus was hated by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He was hated by the conservatives and the liberals. If you're too conservative for the liberals and too liberal for the conservatives, you might be in a good spot. And you might be hated by a lot of people. They didn't know what to do with Jesus and they won't know what to do with you. They won't know what to do with the church. That was one of the massive things that the Romans had issues with. These letters from Roman officials to these like under uh, leaders, they would write back and forth. And they're like, I don't understand these people. Like they, they, they don't believe our gods, but they love our people better than we can love them. They actually take care of our poor better than we can take care of them. And rather than just saying, hey, we should let them take care of our poor. They said, we should kill them. They don't know what to do with them. The world doesn't know what to do with Jesus. They don't know what to do with you. They don't. That's okay. Won't be comfortable, but you're in good company. They didn't know what to do with Jesus. So they did the only thing they knew to do. They killed him. He didn't fit their boxes. So they got rid of him not knowing that by killing him, he would die for the very sin they were committing against him. To forgive them, he prayed from the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Church, they don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're celebrating. They don't know what they're worshiping. They don't know what they're giving their lives to. They think they do, they don't. It's rebellion. And we can come in here from 10 to noon, talk about Jesus and sing our happy songs. But if we don't go to them, 
if we don't love them, if we don't serve them, if we don't, if we don't pursue the, the common good of this community and seek to do good to all people, especially the household of faith, but all people, to love one another, to love them, to serve them, to bring them the good news. You can't look out there and point the finger at them and chastise them. I met a woman one time who gave her life to Jesus and she came up after church one Sunday and and, and told me that she gave her life to Jesus. And I asked her her story and she said, I've never had anything against Jesus. Just nobody ever told me about him. We have this fear that everyone has made up their minds about Jesus, but there are many people out there who just haven't been told. Even living in 21st century Western America, where we feel like Jesus is a household name, we are becoming post-Christian. Talking about Jesus is like talking about Zeus. It's just mythology to people. And you tell them that you believe in Jesus, you you believe in what? And then you tell them, and then you show them, and then you love them, and and it, it changes lives. Not everyone is going to try to crucify you for telling them about Jesus. Some of them might actually thank you because they know they're desperate. They know they can't find anything in life that satisfies, but Jesus satisfies. Then Jesus' strategy to be in the world, but not of the world, to live a distinctly different life and to love people, he then sent us out with. He said, go make disciples of all nations. What nations? All nations. What people? The Genesis 10 people. Okay. Whether tribe, tongue, or nation, or ideology, or whatever divides we want to cut the world into pieces with and try to identify people and and pigeonhole people, whatever it is, all of them, go to them. As you go, make disciples. Not make them like you, make disciples. Do it in love, but make disciples. A disciple is just a a learner, someone who's following Jesus. And as we live distinctly different lives and as we live in love for our community, what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 13 through 16 would be true of us. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, How shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We're called to be salt and light. I just had a meal the other day and I had to add salt to my steak. I should not go to a restaurant and have to add salt to my steak. But there's a reason that you add salt to the steak. Okay, it brings out the flavors. It brings out the beauty. And Genesis 10 is full of all of these nations and this whole world is full of all of, all of these nations and cultures and peoples. But when, when, when the people of God are added, when Jesus is added and people of God are made from within all of these different cultures, all of these different treasures and beauty and value of all of these cultures, it comes to life and, 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 and is like this 
is like this garden. A garden is beautiful because of its diversity. And so as salt, we're this preservative, but we're this flavor enhancer in the world. We're supposed to be. I heard a pastor say, when Christians show up to the party, the party should get better. We should enhance the party. We should enhance the joy because we've got the only thing in the world to truly have eternal joy about. The salt of the earth, the light of the world, shining into darkness, not just to expose sin, but to expose what's really going on in the world. To, to bring light to it so that people can see clearly, to see God, to receive salvation, to, to, to shine a, a light in the darkness as Jesus shined a light in the darkness. But we can't shine a light in the darkness if we don't go to the darkness. Not to be a part of the darkness, not to participate in the darkness, but to expose the darkness. God's calling us to live like Jesus in our community to be in the world, but not of the world, to be salt and light. Because God loves the world and wants them to know that Jesus alone is the power to save this world. And so if you have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, then you are called to bring the message of the forgiveness of sins in Jesus to everyone who needs to hear it. This is not my job. This is our job, all of us, okay? Evangelism is not, hey, you should come to church with me. Evangelism is, hey, I want to tell you about Jesus, okay? And then don't wait for them to come here. Go to them. Invite them into your homes. Go into their homes. Bring light into darkness, He saved you from the world and has sent you into the world so that by our testimony, they might see and believe. Just close with this and I don't have it written down. So if I botch this verse, I apologize. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. But how will they hear if nobody preaches? How will they preach if they're not sent? If Reality Carp is your church, consider yourself sent. Whether that's in Carpinteria or Santa Barbara or Ventura or Nashville or London or Indonesia or wherever else you might be going to, consider yourself sent because people need to hear. Father, send us. Save us and send us. May we not just point the finger at this world and leave them apart from the only thing we know that they need, God, but would you send us into the darkness to manifest your light Lord, I I just want to confess, it's so easy for me to come up and say these things. I'm preaching to the choir. 
It's really hard for me to do this out there. It's hard for all of us. It's easy to come in here and talk a big talk. It's difficult, especially with those closest to us. I don't know what else to say except, God, give us boldness. Overwhelm us with delight in our salvation and overflow in us this joy and and desire for those who are far from you to be brought near. But God, give us boldness. To bring your goodness to those who need you, Lord. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.